You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. So last week, I'm sitting in the front row right here. Pastor Keith has already done two of his messages. We're in the third one, this service. And I'm thinking about this week. And if you, did, you missed last week, uh, this is one of those messages I would encourage you to rewind, go on our website, look at the message, especially those deliverables at the end. Pastor Keith ended his message on the devil overplaying his hand with three key take-homes that I think they're game changers. I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to that message. But as he was landing, I was thinking of this week's message. And I was thinking, in a world that seems off course, can you count on God's promises? And I remembered this song that I sang as a little kid growing up, and I thought, we should sing it. Because I want to talk about promises. I want to talk about God's promises in a world that seems off course. And I'm thinking the global world, but I'm also thinking locally and even personally. Maybe personally your world is off course. So I want to start by taking a bit of a survey I'm going to give you four things, and if you can answer yes to these, put up your hand, okay? Don't worry, none of them are embarrassing. Here's the first one. Think of everyone you know and everyone you've ever known. Think of them all. You got everyone in your mind? Has everyone you know and everyone you've ever known, have they all kept their promises to you? Man, the same in this service as the other ones. Hmm. Oh, okay, maybe it gets better though. Think of every company you've ever done business with or every product you've ever purchased. Has all of those products and all of those companies kept all of their promises? Still not a hand. Maybe in this one though. Think of every politician you've ever known. <laughs> every promise and tweet they've done. <laughs> Have they kept their promises? Hmm. Oh, whoa. <laughs> this side, especially politically averse. <laughs> uh, okay, how about this one? Think of you. Have you kept all your promises? Here's the thing I already knew how you'd answer. Because we're conditioned at an early age to recognize that promises are broken all the time. That's why we have elaborate ceremonies to kind of seal promises, like a wedding ceremony. We seal the promise. What we're doing is we're putting weight on that promise. We're putting weight on it because it needs to be. It's a weighty promise. As a kid growing up, sometimes in the playground, people do pinky swears. Anyone know what that is? You know, kids would make a promise and they say, I don't believe you, and say, I'll pinky swear you, and you take your pinky and you interlink it. Here's where that comes from. It comes from 1860, and it came out of a little poem that was in print. It says this, Pinky, Pinky, Bobel. Don't ask me. I don't know. Pinky, Pinky, Bobel. Whoever tells a lie will sink down to the bad place and never rise again. Whoa. So the pinky square was literally this. If you break your promise, you're going to go to the bad place. Anyone know where the bad place is? Yeah, that place. And never rise again. I mean, pretty serious. Now, I didn't grow up with a pinky swear, but I grew up with cross my heart, hope to die. <laughs> what a terrible saying. And it was first in print in 1906, but it actually has roots in religious roots because uh, uh, many faith traditions would cross themselves. And so it would be cross my heart, and the original saying was look to God. 
So the idea was this. If I break my word here, God's going to get involved. But it turned into cross my heart, hope to die. It's one of those things that when you think of it now, it's kind of morbid, right? And we, we do that because we're conditioned to believe that promises will always be broken. They're hard to believe. In fact, when people promise us something, we put it through a promise matrix of sorts. And often, you don't even think about this, but you do it. We always put it through a matrix. The first thing we ask ourselves, is the person promising this, are they dependable? Have they been dependable in the past? Like when somebody promises you something, I promise I'll be there, but they've made many promises in the past and they haven't shown up. Don't you automatically dismiss it at this level? Because maybe you should. Because <laughs> the greatest predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And often, we look for the dependability of the promise giver, right? Are they going to be dependable? There's another thing we look for. Again, you probably don't even think about this. But we often look for, am I going to be able to get progress reports? I'm meaning deadlines. We want to know when. So I promise you this is going to happen. Okay, like... Like, is that just something that's going to keep rolling out there? Or like, when? Like, I promise, Dad, I'll, I'll clean my room. When? Because we want a deadline. We want accountability with it so that we can have confidence in the promise. And I see parents looking at their children right now. That was a good one. Here's the third one. Uh, we, when someone promises something, we want to know, is it even believable? Have you ever had someone promise something that's just, you know it's unattainable. It's not even believable. You ever have that? My first church that I pastored in, or the second one really, I was planting a church. I was 24 years old. And the church was in an economically depressed region of this, of this nation. And there were a lot of people, most of the people that attended that church had never grown up going to a church. So there, it was really raw, it was very real. And I remember after one service, a woman named June coming up to me, and June had three children, two different dads, and no one at home. And she was a great woman, but she was just finding God and everything. And she said to me, I play the lottery every week. I was thinking like, I don't know if you can afford that, June, but I play the lottery every week. And when I win, I'm gonna give most of it to the church. I promise you, pastor. I said, June, don't, don't promise me. No, I want to. I'm going to win the lottery, and I'm going to give most of it to the church. I promise you. She won. Yeah. Not the big one, but, but a, but a five-figure one. I didn't see June for months. Like, honestly, it was months. No June, nothing. And then I remember months later in walks June. June's head's kind of down because she's burned through that cash. It's just gone, baby. There's nothing there. She walks in and, you know, you take the pressure off. Jude, it's okay. I'm just glad you're back in community. Good to have you here. You know, sometimes people promise stuff and it's not even attainable. It's not reasonable. You know they're promising maybe in a place of pressure or maybe their heart desires to do something, but you know they can't do it. Maybe their track record has spoken to that, or maybe there's no way to hold them to this promise. So sometimes in life, when, especially in a world seems off course, you got to know what promises you can stand on, who you can depend on, what you're going to believe. Dr. Van talked about how this is Advent season, and for some of you, this is a traditional season you grew up celebrating. For others, Advent's a strange word. 
Advent, literally, all it means is coming. That's what the word means. It means coming. It starts on this Sunday, this first Sunday in December, and it ends on Christmas Eve. And it's a season of celebration, expectation, hope, because of a promise that was made was fulfilled. See, if, if you look back, the promise of Christmas is one where we celebrate the promised Messiah's arrival. So God had promised, I'm going to send a savior, a redeemer, somebody that's going to save you, someone that's going to save this world. And he promised that, and we celebrate at Christmas, he delivered that. That's what we're celebrating. God kept his word. But we're also celebrating the promise of Christmas is one where we celebrate the promised Messiah's return. In this Christmas season, it's one of promise that God came in the form of Jesus Christ to save this world, but the Messiah will come back again. And he will right all the wrongs in that time. He will right all the injustices in that moment. He will bind up broken hearts. He will set captives free. He will, there will be no more tears, no more death. That's what's going to happen when Christ returns. So all of the trappings of Christmas. Christmas can become so distracting, but it's really important we stay focused. From Christmas trees to lights to songs to gifts, Historically, all of those were meant to trigger, in you and me, gratitude. They were meant to trigger a reminder of what Jesus came to do and the promise that he's coming again. That's what it was meant to do. But here's the rub, and this is why it's so hard to hold on to these promises when your world is out of control. Because the longer you wait, hope dissipates. The longer you're waiting for a promise to come to fruition, Oh, hope begins to sink. So in that first century where Jesus was born into, in, into Israel and, and Bethlehem, in that first century, that was a, a culture and a day and age when hope was uh, at, at staggeringly low levels. I mean, their world was out of control. To them, it never seemed worse because for centuries, they had been promised a deliverer. There was going to be a Messiah coming to set God's people free, but now it's worse than ever. They have never experienced anything. They've experienced the Persians, the Babylonians, all of these oppressors, opp oppressors but nothing like the Roman Empire. I mean, the Roman Empire was dominant, and they ruled for a long time. It feel like there was no end to their rule. There was a a cruelty about it. There was an oppression about it. And they had all these promises, but the promises, there were over 300 in the Old Testament that promised the Savior would come. And the first one starts in Genesis chapter 3. There's over 300 of them. They've been around for centuries, but generations have come and gone and no Messiah. So, so we can go easy on them a little bit that maybe they weren't looking for Jesus. Maybe they weren't even expecting a Messiah to show up. Because, friends, you know, maybe you know how they feel. I mean, if you're looking for deliverance and there's a promise of a deliverer and the deliverer's not showing up, you can begin to think that God doesn't care. Worse, you can begin to think that God doesn't keep his promises. You see, in your Bible, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. And in the Old Testament, all these 300 promises. The last book of the Bible was the book of Nehemiah, chronologically. It's not, if you look in the a copy of the Bible, it's not the last book, but chronologically it is. And a man named Nehemiah, who had been in captivity, went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And then after that, nothing. 
For 400 years, in fact, there was silence. And that's why in many early publishers of the Bible, they would, they would print one blank piece of paper between the Old Testament and New Testament, meaning to signify 400 years of silence. 400 years when there wasn't another prophet speaking to God's people on behalf of God. 400 years when there wasn't another promise given to God's people. No progress report along the way. Uh, when I, uh, a couple of years ago, Dr. Van and, and Pastor Smith and I, we were in the Holy Land, and uh, Dr. Van, you know, he's useful on occasion, just so you know. His PhD is in this intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's brilliant. Uh, and he is, too. Just don't tell him I said that. You know, that period of silence does something to somebody, and it does something to some people. When there's quietness amidst promise, I think we know how the children of God felt. I mean, some of you have been waiting for God to show up and rescue you. Some of you have been waiting on God to cure cancer. Some of you have been waiting on God to fix your finances. Some of you have been waiting on God to heal your marriage. Hey, some of you have been waiting on God to deal with justice. Somebody has wounded you. Someone has been unjust towards you, and you've left it in God's hands. But those people seem to be doing great. They seem to be excelling. And you know, where's God and all of that? I mean, I think we know how they feel. Some of us have been waiting and waiting. And here's the difficulty when you've been promised something and you're waiting on something. Here's the problem. First, our first response is we begin to act more independently. Now, I want you to do a little self-assessment now. No matter how, if you've known the Lord 50 years, or you've known the Lord one year, or you don't even know God here. But do a little self-assessment. If you want to know if hope is leaking from you, if you don't have that sense of hope and expectation and joy for what Jesus has promised, this is a great way to, to self-evaluate. To be independent is natural in that we go through a phase in life and you find out and discover in life, you can't depend on people all the time, can you? I mean, have you ever placed your trust in somebody and they, they misused that trust or they didn't come through? And that happens enough times you start to realize, you know, I got to do it myself. You know, you'll see this on sports teams sometimes where, where the team's not playing well and so the, the person with the most talent tries to put it all on their shoulders and they try to do it all themselves. And, you know, it doesn't usually work out well. But there's something appealing about being independent that we don't need people. And sometimes, too, if God's not come through when you wanted him to come through the way you wanted him to come through, what happens over time is we feel like we can't trust him. So what do we do? I got to take care of it myself. And this is appealing, especially certain personality types. I think there are certain personality types that like to stand up by themselves and they don't need other people. And so this really appeals to them. But over time, this works really well too, friends, until it doesn't. <laughs> it works really well until you can't change your spouse's feelings. You can't change the decisions of your children, your adult children. You can't change the doctor's diagnosis. All of a sudden, you realize you have limitations. 
But see, if we live long enough, it doesn't mean you don't follow Jesus. It doesn't mean you don't come to church each week. You've just learned to live more independently. You don't see him as your provider. It's your money. You've got to take care of you because nobody else is going to take care of you. And it's a mindset that begins to affect us that all of a sudden we come to gatherings like this more to get something to go. I'll, I'll take it to go. I don't want to stay to eat. Uh, this is a, I'll take it to go. We're living more independently in the faith realm. And if you live there long enough, you'll go to the next phase, which is indignation. And some of us are there today. I know it. This is the place where we're angry. We're angry at God. We're angry how our lives turned out. If you're in your early 20s, you might not be able to fully relate. Now, you might be going through difficult things, but you feel like you got this long runway in front of you. Somehow everything's going to turn around. You, do, you work hard enough. You're talented enough. Everything's going to be great. And then some of us are a little older than that. Just a little. And we've lived long enough to know life isn't fair. And you get dealt cards you didn't want. And, and people deal you cards at work that are unfair. And people give you cards that were, should be opportunities and open doors, and it's unfair in the way they close those doors, and they don't give you the card. Like, I mean, life is, life is sometimes even cruel, if I could use that word. And you get there long enough, you get angry. And it shows up one of two ways. If you're the type of passive person and you like to repress all that anger... You know, that's those moments where you participate in church community, even as a follower of Jesus, you do. But there's a subtle undergirding of anger towards God, towards life. You feel like you've gotten the raw deal. Or, or it's aggressive anger, where, where you can't help. You know, if you have the opportunity and someone says something, you're like, yeah, whatever. And the, the, the eyes roll. You ever do the eye roll? You don't have a teenager in your house then. <laughs> it's just kind of standard practice. It's, a, it's protocol. It's, it's a, kind of a, an anger, a response like whatever, right? And if you stay in that indignation level, you have to go to the next level because you can't sustain it long term. We become indifferent. And it's predictable. It's a protection mechanism. You got to stop caring because you get tired of being angry all the time. You shut it all down. That's when you really say, whatever. And you can still come to church here. You can still kind of want God. But at this stage, when you're indifferent, your heart is getting colder. You're more on the peripheral. When worship happens, you lean back. You don't lean in. When Dr. Van leads us in a prayer, you're kind of like, whatever. You know, if this helps you. No, you wouldn't verbalize that because you're attending church. Uh, it, it's when you're participating in community or opening the word of God, there's pieces of you that just sit there and go, yeah, I guess it helps other people. Now, that's, this is where church becomes ritual. This is where it becomes a habit. This is where it becomes something we do because we'd feel guilty not doing it. You know, you ever been there where you don't want to, someone invites you over and you don't want to go, but you feel guilty if you didn't? Family is really good at that. And here, it's like that, that's what church becomes. Something that we'd feel guilty not going to, but not something we really fully participate in. So what do you do when you find yourself in that place? What do you do when you find yourself off course? What do you do when you're waiting? A great author, Lewis Smead, said this, and I think this applies to all of us who are waiting. Waiting is our destiny as creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for. We wait in the darkness for a flame, we cannot light. 
We wait in fear for a happy ending we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Waiting, can you say it with me, this last line? Waiting is the hardest work of hope. Waiting is the hardest work of hope. So friends, back in that first century, can we cut them some slack? They've been waiting. They've been waiting for promises. God doesn't seem to be coming through. Whose promises can you stand on? Who can you believe? So in our remaining minutes, we won't be long today, I want to talk about one person in Scripture that's going to help us understand what we do when we find ourselves in this situation. When the world seems off course or when our world seems off course, how do you stand on the promises of God? There's this man in Scripture, his name is the Apostle Paul. And I like Paul a lot because he was a real rascal before he came to Christ. And I love Paul because Paul meant Jesus, not, uh, he never meant him in the pre-crucified state. He never meant him when he was teaching and performing miracles. He never knew him when he was resurrected. He never knew him when he ascended to heaven. Instead, Paul came to Jesus in this incredible encounter on the Damascus Road. And maybe you've heard of that term before. It comes from Paul where a bright light strikes him down and he falls to the ground and a voice from heaven speaks to him and says, and before he came to Jesus, his name was Saul of Tarsus. That's what he was known as. And it's a dramatic conversion when Jesus speaks to him and says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you hurting my followers? Because before, Jesus was a, before Paul was a Jesus follower, he was a Jesus hater. I mean, he hated Christians. I mean, if you're here and somebody invited you, you're just like, man, I can barely stand Christians. Well, you would have loved Paul before he came to Jesus. Because he hated them so much, he was able to convince the government that, to give him orders to be able to capture Christians and torture them to blaspheme the name of Jesus or to at least reveal where the other Christians were hiding. The Christians were hiding after Jesus died because there was a lot of animosity, a lot of persecution coming against them. And Paul led the charge of it. And he thought the whole time he was doing, Jesus, he was doing God sorry, a favor. So before he, before he became Paul, he was a Christ hater before he became a Christ follower. That's important for you to know. You know why? Because people can change. Man, we got to believe that. People can change. Now, we have only so much willpower to change ourselves. And I believe people can even change without acknowledging Christ. There, there is positive change that can happen in people's lives. But Jesus... Whoa, he shifts everything from the inside out. It's dramatic change. And Paul shifts. He, let me tell you the end of the story. He becomes this incredible evangelist who plants churches all over the Greco-Roman world at that time. And if you know the story of Paul, you should read the book of Acts if you don't know it because it's phenomenal. Because this man is a formidable man. He faces all kinds of adversaries and, and roadblocks and stuff like that. But he's so formidable and determined and he has a strong faith. And he just keeps marching through it. Like it's an incredible story. Like filled with this miraculous, incredible moments. But here's what happens that fascinates me about Paul and applies to us today. Paul becomes a follower of Jesus and just when he kind of, to use an old term, gets right with God, just when God gives him a mission to go plant all these churches, uh, Paul gets sick. He experiences an affliction after he becomes a follower of Jesus. We don't know what it is. 
We do know two things about it, though. We know it wasn't going away. It's important to remember. It wasn't going away. And we know this. It was inhibiting his ability to do what Jesus had called him to do. When your world seems off course, Paul gives us a very, very, very powerful lesson on how to respond. Here's how it, I, this is what I love about the Bible too. The Bible gives his commentary. He wrote all these letters, and this is, I love this leader, Paul. We often talk in our culture and day and age because we crave genuine authenticity because we're so used to being lied to. Isn't it refreshing when someone stands up and says something uh, that's true about them instead of just glowing all the time about them? Well, Paul wrote these letters to these churches, and he's very honest about where he's at and how he's processed it. And we get a gift of a moment in 2 Corinthians where he responds to what's going on in his life. He writes this to this church in Corinth. He says this, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, interesting, I was given. Now, before we get to the rest of it, this word given is really important. In the Greek, he chose an interesting word. It's a positive word. It means, it's like a Christmas gift, a birthday gift. It was a benevolent good thing. He's not given a curse here. He's not given something bad. This is, the Greek word he chose to use is one that's very positive and a very common word for giving like a gift to someone you care about. So he says this. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given what? What was I given? I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan, of Satan to torment me. Paul. I think you got your grammar mixed up. <laughs> because you said something positive and then showed us something negative. Clearly, Paul didn't understand Greek. No. No, what is he saying here? Because this is a little shifting in my thinking and maybe even yours. He's saying, clearly, I was given a gift and it was a thorn. Now, a thorn would have been something that was an affliction that continued. It was an irritation. Didn't go away. In my flesh, a messenger of Satan. Now, there's lots of different uh, ideas of what that means. Some people think it was an expression in a Greek term, kind of like we would say in modern English, it, like it hurts like the devil. You ever hear that expression? Okay, I'm all alone in that. Okay, there is an expression out there. Some people think it's that. Most theologians would believe that the thorn doesn't come from God. It comes from uh, the evil one, right? So God's not giving this bad gift, but he has this thing he starts to see as a gift, and you'll see why in a moment. And this is the hard part. It torments him. Now, that Greek word is equally difficult because it literally means to punch with a fist. And it has in it, in the nature of that word, that it's a continual thing that goes on and on. Kind of like being bullied at school. And you show up each week, and you're getting beat up. He's saying this. I've been given a thorn in the flesh that beats me up daily. It's difficult. It stricken him. He's being tormented by it. Now, we don't know what it is, but we do know, and you're going to see, that God can take anything that's dealt our way and he can, do, he can bring something good out of it. God can take anything that comes our way, and he can bring something good out of it. It's just so hard to see when you're going through it. It is so hard to see when you're going through it. 
See, we don't know what his affliction was. I'll tell you what people think it is, what theologians think it is. Some believe it was epilepsy. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, in that day and age, they didn't understand that that was a physiological problem. People would have seen it in that day and age as some sort of spiritual thing that was happening to the person. So this would be very humiliating for Paul, who's going around and teaching the good news of Jesus. And if he had an episode, he'd have to then try to explain to them what was going on. Uh, some theologians, have, and they gather that from different verses and trying to put it together. Some believe it was he had an eye disease. Because he does mention in other of his letters that he can't read, he can't see well. Some people believe it was malaria. Others think it was depression. Lots of conjecture. Let's be clear. We don't know what this thorn in the flesh was for Paul. But we do get the gift of understanding how he responds. Paul says this. This is how he dealt with the debilitating, even humiliating and painful thing that was going on in his world. Paul said this. Three times... I plead it with the Lord to take it away from me. Yeah, Paul's telling you this. I don't care how old you are, young or anything. If you're going through something that is painful and difficult, go to God. Paul did it. Paul wasn't too big to do it. He didn't walk independently and say, I'm just going to endure this. Take it to God. I have this habit. I try to constantly pray when I'm feeling something or when I'm walking by something I'm feeling bad for maybe their life circumstances. I see it. I just pray right away if I can on the spot. What am I doing? Take it to God right away, just like the Apostle Paul did. When he says three times, this is likely three seasons in his life where it became unbearable. I'm sure he was like many of us. We learn to live with things. But there are certain times where it just feels unbearable where it's beating you down. And this is probably what he means here. He's coming at points in his life where he's feeling like, God, I can't continue doing what you called me to do. I can't continue doing this. I, 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 you need to deliver me. He's had enough. He can't go on. Here's what's interesting. Because some of us, some of us beat ourselves up because we're going through it. Because your marriage is no longer better or things at work haven't turned around, or you haven't been healed, and then some of us wrongly believe we don't have enough faith. Because you'll hear that taught sometimes. Now, I'll tell you why I don't believe that to be the case. Why you need just enough faith to turn to Jesus and God can do miraculous things is because I think Paul had more faith than all of us put together. I think Paul, if you read the story of Paul, what incredible faith that man had. Incredible faith. And sometimes what we can do is we can start beating ourselves up. And I believe that's a great strategy of the enemy. Just when you're down, there's nothing like kicking you further down. There's nothing like get it, drawing a little bit of blood. And the enemy would love to do that in those moments. But things are framed differently here. And here's the thing that Paul helps us with. He reminds us over and over, when your world seems to go, be going off course, personally, locally, or globally, who are you going to trust? What promises are you going to cling to when it doesn't appear like his kingdom is coming and his will is being done in your life, in our city, in our world, as it is in heaven? How do you reconcile that? You've got to remember what God promised and what he didn't promise. I wished, I've gone through the Bible, I can't find it here, that God would promise a life of comfort. How many would like that? Nice easy chair? Your favorite beverage? New England Patriots? 
anyone but the Houston Texans, whatever it is. You know, but, but God doesn't promise us that. I wish he promised that marriages would all be easy. Just easy. Like, we get along 24-7. It's just amazing all the time. Do you ever been like that? My marriage is like that for about 30 seconds, and then it just kind of, you know, it's, no, that's not a real relationship. I, I kind of wish he promised that all of our kids would always turn out amazing. But, you know, they make choices in life just like you and I did. He doesn't promise that, but he does promise us a number of things. Often, we think God promised those things. Now, those things will be someday. Those things will be someday. But in the here and not yet, we're reminded by the words of Jesus in John chapter 16. He said this, and I think it would do us well to read it out loud together. Can we read it out loud together? In this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties. Whoa, don't keep reading. Did you hear that? Jesus said that in this world that seems off course, we'll continue to experience... Well, gosh. (laughs) Here's the thing, friends. I think some of us need to mature a little bit in our faith. Why are we shocked every time things don't work out? Why are we shocked when somebody doesn't like us and they come into opposition? Why are we shocked that we face some uh, persecution? For our faith. Why are we shocked when things don't go just tickety-boo all the time? We shouldn't be shocked. And here's the problem. If you continue to be shocked every time it comes off the rails, if you do, hope will dissipate. You'll move in that area of independence. Indignation likely is where you'll land with something like that. If you know that this is life, Life has great days, life has tough days. Life has great moments, life has tough moments because it's in the here and not yet. Someday, every day will be amazing. But until that day, we deal with this. And in life, we'll experience difficulties. But look, I love Jesus. He gives us the truth, but not without hope. And he says this, but, let's say it together, but take heart. Oh, friends. Say it like I am. <laughs> but take heart. I've conquered the world. There are other portions of the scripture where God reminds us, greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. That he has created us to be more than conquerors when we are in Christ Jesus. Now we quote those promises and sometimes they feel so hollow depending on where we're sitting. Depending on where we're at. But here's the thing with Paul. Paul gives us a way forward because he tells us precisely the promises we can stand on when life is tough. Here he continues his narrative. God speaks to Paul because Paul's pleading with God, take away my problems, God. And God says this, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, here's a neat thing. Reverse these two words doesn't change the meaning, but sometimes it helps you to understand this a little bit better when you're in the middle of a world that seems off course. My power is sufficient for you. My power is sufficient for you. My grace is made perfect in weakness. It doesn't change the meaning, but it changed the emphasis and help you see it a little different. His power is sufficient. Here's the thing. When I'm going through it, when life has come at me with double barrels, And it's difficult. And it's off course. When this world globally is off course. Uh, Friends, I've been off Twitter for a little while, as much as I can be, because I'm just tired of what I'm seeing. 
It's depressing. It's it's difficult. And I don't want to ignore the facts of this world. It's not that at all. But I do know this. I need to keep my eyes focused on what God has promised. He has promised me a grace and a strength and a power to endure. Endurance and resilience, I love those words, except when I'm going through them. You know, who doesn't love the idea of being resilient in life and enduring? It gives me the idea of problems coming and I'm punching my way through it. I'm enduring and I'm resilient. And until you're going through it, and until it's chronic, that's the difference too. Paul's issue is chronic. It's not a one-off. Chronic pain, chronic challenges are much more difficult. I don't minimize those moments. But if you break your leg, it's terrible. It will heal and you'll likely move on. But when you're going through chronic pain, like some of people in our church come each week, many of our seniors, they are all dealing with some sort of chronic pain or chronic challenge, mobility or whatever it is, and they still come. Some of us don't fully appreciate what they sacrifice to be a part of this gathering each week. But we honor you. We honor you, friends for the way that you have prioritized the community of faith despite the pain that you may face. Some of that is not even chronic pain. Some of it's a chronic mental issue or emotional issue. And that's the stuff that wears us down. Paul understands completely like this. And Paul says it'll be grace, power, and strength that Jesus gives us that will help us stand when we feel like sitting. See, how can he make that promise? Because God pinky swore with us. Jesus promised he would come. And he went down to the bad place. And he died the death we should have died. And he lived the life we couldn't live. And he paid the debt we couldn't pay. And he went down not because he didn't keep his promise, but precisely because he did. What a man. What a God. What a Savior, friends. What a glorious promise giver our God is. And he is dependable. Like, run, God, run Jesus through that matrix, that promise matrix. Ha, has he been dependable in the past? You know, 300, year, 300 promises, and what does God do? He delivers the goods. Is it on our timetable? Not often. Is it always the way we think it should be done? Almost never. It's amazing how creative God is, why his timing is unique. He has all kinds of things he's working on. But listen, Uh, Many people in this room would say, yes, God is dependable. You've been able to trust him in the past. Uh, Am I getting progress reports in this, uh, as I go along, as God has made these promises? Here's the problem with pain. If you're going through pain or difficulty in this world, or you're watching too much Twitter, and you're giving too much space to what's going on in this world, sometimes the anxiety levels get so high or our pain is so loud that it speaks louder than what is going on inside of us. The Bible says this, that when you became a follower of Jesus, you were filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to speak about that in February. Really excited about a series we're going to do on the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit, one of his great jobs is he bear witnesses with your spirit that you are a son or daughter of God. And if you listen, you'll notice that God is giving you progress updates all through the difficulties you're facing. It often comes in the form of some encouraging word. It comes in the human form sometimes. Sometimes it's just you have those moments where it was a good moment or a good day. And the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to you. God's not asleep. 
God's not, he doesn't not care. He is not not keeping his promises. He's at work. And then, is this an attainable promise? Well, I mean, he's God. You know, I think I put limitations around God all the time. But he has no limits. I sometimes reduce God to a degree that it's manageable because maybe I like to be independent. I don't like to have to depend on others. And that's a character flaw. Because I know this, we all are, whether we realize it or not. I'd like to read some words from the Apostle Peter because it reminds us when we're in a world that seems off course, it reminds us where to keep our thinking in gear. For some of you, you might want to close your eyes. For some of you, you may have already had them closed. (laughs) Yes. But close your eyes. Listen to Peter's words here, because I believe faith will rise in your heart as we listen to Peter's word. Here's what the apostle Peter said, because he walked with Jesus. He said, if with heart and soul you're doing good, do you think you can be stopped? Even if you suffer for it, you're still better off. Don't give the opposition a second thought. Through thick and thin, keep your hearts at attention in adoration before Christ your master. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you are and always with the utmost courtesy. Keep a clear conscience before God so that when people throw mud at you, none of it will stick. They'll end up realizing that they're the ones who need the bath. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that's what God wants, than to be punished for doing bad. That's what Christ did definitively. Listen to what he did. He suffered because of other sins. The righteous one for the unrighteous ones. He went through it all, was put to death, and then made alive to bring us back to God. So friends, I don't know what you're going through. I sat in a room within the last two to three weeks with someone I know very, very well and and love dearly. And there was a third person in the room. And the person asked this friend of mine, this person I know and love well, how she was doing with Jesus. How was her relationship with God? And what a a difficult question to answer, depending on where you're sitting. And I know this person. uh, she's not overly emotional person. She's not given to just a, a, a ton of emotions. But I watched tears go down her face. And she said, you know, for three years I felt nothing. I didn't feel God. I didn't feel Jesus. It was all up here. That, okay, I'm going to tell myself Jesus loves me. I'm going to tell myself Jesus cares. But I felt nothing. And she said, I don't know what's going on. I can't even point to a change. But she said, it's almost as if I'm coming out of the thaw and I can't stop thinking and feeling Jesus now. I can't stop thinking about him and I can't stop feeling him. And because I knew her well, I probed. I said, how? how? What, what do you say? And she said, all I, all I know is I kept showing up. So what do you mean showing up? I kept showing up to church when I didn't feel like showing up. I kept singing songs I didn't even fully feel and engage with. 
I kept each day reading the Bible, not because I felt I found life in it, because I felt nothing. But I knew God was trying to speak to me through it. And she said, I kept praying. And she said, sometimes I prayed, it was out of rote. I didn't even mean it. I don't know what I meant. I felt nothing. I felt dead spiritually for three years. That's perseverance, friends. That's endurance. I don't wish that on anyone. But maybe you're there. You know, maybe you're there. Friends, he gives us a grace and a strength and a power in a world that seems off course. And even when our world seems off course. Father, I thank you, God, for the gift of your son, Jesus. I don't know what I'd do. I, I know we echo that right across this room. What would we do without Jesus? And where would we be? What kind of state would we might be living okay lives? We might be living all right lives, lives God, but in the end, the promise of eternity, and, and not just that, to live for him daily. What a joy to know Jesus. God, I pray for my friends in this room. And friends, you, I ask you to do a self-diagnosis, and this is the moment where you're going to pray around that. I pray for those who find themselves maybe living independent of you. I mean, they're coming to church. They want you, but they've learned, God, that things don't happen on their timetable their way. And maybe they've been really disappointed by people, and even people in the community of faith who've made commitments to them and not kept them, God. And God, that's given them a reason to just take care of themselves. So God, they keep showing up, getting what they need and leaving, not fully engaging. Father, pray you be with my friends that find themselves there. And friends, if that's you, I want to invite you to just take a step. Just a step towards dependence on Jesus. And maybe this is a way to pray that. Jesus, forgive me for just trying to do things my own way, but to be honest, I felt ignored at times. But I'm going to step into a place of trust right now, and I want to invite you to get involved in my life, in my thinking, in my school, in my workplace, in my home, in my private life, I want to come here, God, and lean in, expecting I'll meet with you, expecting you're already here, expecting you have a plan to engage me and move my heart and mind. And so in this moment, I choose to just say, God, move me, change me. And friends, if you're here and you're more further down the path and you're feeling indignation, maybe you have this anger towards God, anger towards where you might find yourself in life right now, I want you to know God can handle your anger. He doesn't love you less because you're angry. He doesn't love you less. But I want to challenge you to just set aside your anger just in this moment. You might not be able to set it aside forever, but just just for a moment, set it aside and maybe think and act as if you're not angry in this moment and just have an honest conversation with God. Maybe it goes something like this. God... I feel hurt. I'm angry because I prayed many times. I pled like Paul did. and It feels like you've done nothing, God, and I haven't seen it. And 
My anger comes from the fact that I, I, I feel ignored I, or I feel, God, that maybe you don't care. God, I want to trust you, but it's been hard. But I don't want to be an angry person. So, Holy Spirit, would you begin to direct my life and my thinking? And God, I, help you, I pray that you would help me to trust you. I take a step of trust towards you, God, that you know things I don't know. You see things I can't see. That your timetable has a reason and your ways have a reason. Help me to trust you. Because I, I, I want to live free. I don't want to be controlled by anger. And then friends, if you're feeling indifferent and maybe you've been on the outside, you come into gatherings like this, worship starts going, arms starts crossing. Maybe, maybe uh, the message uh, it bothers you at times because there's high challenge in it and you just feel like, what's, why bother? I, I want to invite you to, I dare you, I dare you to take a step towards Jesus and trust him and lean in in this moment. Jesus, forgive me for my indifference, for the coldness of my own heart. I want you. That's why I keep coming. I just, I want you and I don't want you. I want, want this church community and I don't want this church community. There's all kinds of things. I'm very conflicted in the place I stand today. But I pray by the Spirit you'd help clear up the, the, the growth that has led to the coldness of my life. And God, I choose to lean into you, trusting that God is with me and God is for me. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.